Amen. All right, let's go Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, if you don't have one that you can call your own outside of this place, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is really simple when you think about it. Uh, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of incredibly important things. Uh, he uses it to convict us of sin, to draw us to repentance, to uh, shape the way we live and see the world. But chief among those massive things that he uses it for is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. Like, that's the unapologetic mission of National Baptist Church. We want you to know God. We want everything in you and around you to be shaped by knowing him. So it's our aim to actually get your nose in a Bible as often as possible around here. That's why we have reading lists. That's why we have all of these things that we encourage you to be about. And, and so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, take one of those uh, paperback ones home and start reading it. And I'll call it the biggest win of my week, I promise. Um, so we are in the middle of a series that we're calling Just and Justifier. Uh, the concept is, is really, really simple. Uh, uh, the, we're taking a slow walk through uh, the book of Romans, or, or, or what we call a slow walk. Uh, the truth is, it could be a lot slower. Uh, how many of y'all read the Babylon Bee, which is a satirical thing uh, online, uh, satirical news source? And so uh, it had a little probing joke about a pastor who finished a 40-year-long sermon series through the book of Romans. And so it could be worse. <laughs> it could be a lot worse. We're, but by our vantage point, we're just like flying through this, guys. Like last week could have easily been broken up into like seven or eight different weeks. And so, uh, no, we are walking kind of line by line through uh, the book of Romans, and we covered a lot of ground last week, but maybe one day we'll get to take that slower approach. Um, for those of you who are kind of interested in where we're, where we're going from here, uh, the plan is to actually close out chapter 8 today and thereby be officially halfway done with the book of Romans. If you didn't know, there's 16 chapters in Romans. And so we're going to be officially halfway done with Romans after today. And then we're going to shut it down for like three months. And we got, we got some Advent plans, we got some New Year's plans, and then Lord willing, we'll bring it all back together and come back to this stuff in March. Um, so it sound like a good idea? Yeah, I think it's a good idea. That's what we're going to do. So there you go. All right. Now, um, now, for the uninitiated, Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Rome. I tell you all the times, we make fun in here all the time of Christians and their naming things. Romans, that's how it got its name. It's to the Christians who are in Rome. It was written about 57 AD, we think. And essentially, it's a missionary support letter. So how many of y'all have written a missionary support letter? I've written dozens of them. I've gone on lots of different trips to here to there. And at times I've, I've, I've asked friends and family, church members to, to help me get there. And so I've written lots of missionary support letters. Maybe you have too. But man, Paul's missionary support letter is a massive, massive deal. Uh, at this point, he has not been to Rome. By the time that Paul writes this letter, he doesn't know the people in Rome. He's got no connection with the leadership there as far as we know. All right? They're a church a long way off that God has been doing some really cool things in. Paul's heard the story, and Paul believes that God is calling him to take the gospel onto Spain, a place that it hasn't been to yet. And so Paul sees Rome, the church in Rome, as an ally to help him get there. And so in chapter 15 of Romans, Paul tells them that it's his plan to take the gospel onto Spain, and he wants their help. He wants their help with uh, some financial help, uh, probably also in the staging of his next part of the journey. He'll stop there as like a hub and then get sent out. And he probably also, he doesn't mention it, but he probably also wants some help with some people to go with him. He wants some support, some, some brothers and sisters to go and help him start a church over in Spain. And so he writes them this letter. And to do so, he unfolds 
what I think is a massive logical argument for the global need of the gospel and why God is raising up Paul and others like him to take that gospel to the nations. Paul just doesn't, doesn't just come out and say, hey guys, we're on the same team. How about you help a brother out? Like that could have been the way he addressed his, his mission support letter. He's like, hey, we both want this to happen. How about you help me make it happen? No, no, no. He casts a magnificent vision for why they ought to help him. He sets the bar high and then calls them to respond to that call. And the word picture that we've been using to try to wrap our heads around this massive argument is that of a skyscraper. Skyscrapers, man, they're, they're not just simply slapped together. You don't get your best fishing pole and your tallest ladder and lean them up TP style and say, skyscraper. It's not going to go well. That's not a skyscraper. That's an accident waiting to happen. I would have been the kid daring you to climb up it, though, when we were little. <laughs> would have even offered money. It would have been great. Skyscrapers have a plan. They, there's intentionality there. There's, there's a process, and, and, but just as importantly, there's a clear pathway to the work. You don't, you don't hang the antenna from a crane and go off to lunch. You, you start by digging down deep, and you pour your foundation, and you build your base, and piece by piece by piece, you establish your skyscraper as you go, right? There's a process, but the most important part of a skyscraper is not the pretty antenna on top. See, while, while you and I probably would be ooing and eyeing at the pretty little antenna on top, all the engineers in the room know where the real beautiful work is going on. It's at or even below ground level. The foundation is the most important part of a skyscraper. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul establishes his gospel skyscraper foundation with the one person who can actually be resolute enough to be that foundation. Jesus. No one and nothing could ever be more resolute than him. No one and nothing could ever be more faithful and true or capable of bearing the load on an eternal scale. And so in, in the very beginning of this letter, Paul sets Jesus as the foundation of his gospel skyscraper. But, but listen, there's, you don't stop with the foundation. That would just be a hole in the ground. So you start building up, right? And so the first level that's obvious to everyone on the ground Paul argues that we are separated from God because of our sin. In fact, the language he uses is that all men are without excuse, which is not a fun thing to hear. See, long before the law is ever given, like we can talk about do's and don'ts all day long, but long before the law is ever given in human history, Paul argues that our posture towards God is, the, is one of rebellion towards the good, wise, creator, king. We reject him and usurp him and rebel against him. We are without excuse because of what we see around us in creation, that the creator has done big things. And even before we get to the creation piece, we're, we're without excuse because of what exists naturally in all of our own hearts. We reject God and we reject his lordship over our lives. And then the do's and don'ts come in. Then the law comes in and just seals the deal. It illuminates our rebellion and even, even gives opportunity for us to act on our rebellion. And the reality is that we're guilty. And because God is perfectly just, perfectly just, because he always, 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 always gives to people exactly what they deserve, the reality is that we deserve the just punishment of God. The wrath of God is actually owed to us. 
It's owed to us. In fact, if, if God were to fail to give us the wrath that we would deserve, that would be an infringement upon his good, just character. It would mean he is failing to be what he claims to be. The just judge of the cosmos will give to all exactly what they deserve. But Paul has also made it explicitly clear throughout this letter that God is also the great justifier. He declares guilty people to be innocent. And I really hope that that sounds terribly dissonant to you. Like alarm bells should be going off right now. How can God be both just and justifier? Those, those two things under normal circumstances cannot be existent in the same person. Like they can't be true. You cannot be simultaneously someone who gives people exactly what they want and at the very same time someone who is forgiving. Those two things don't mix in the same person. They are opposite things. And so either A, God waffles back and forth between those two positions and you just kind of need to hope that you catch him on a good day. Like the day you die, you just rolled his eyes and hope it wasn't one of the bad ones. Or B, there's a special way for God to be both perfectly just and perfectly justifier at the same time. And the answer to how he pulls that off is Jesus God the Father sins, initiates, sins. God the Son, the eternal Son of God, stepped into human history, real human history. He put on flesh and he dwelled among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. And he died on a Roman cross as a sinless substitute to pay the debt sin that you owe. Follower of Jesus, perfect justice on your sin was fully and forever satisfied in the moment of the cross. Wrath was poured out in full. It was soaked up by Jesus. And the Bible teaches that Jesus takes the sin of his people when he gives us his righteousness in return. And so when God the Father looks at those who belong to Jesus, he sees Jesus' perfect righteousness instead. Sin isn't ignored. Sin isn't excused. It is traded and fully paid for. You are declared innocent before a perfectly holy God because your sin is taken away from you and you're clothed in the perfect righteousness of God. The Bible's word for this declaration of innocence is a word we talked about a lot during this series, justification. Justification. The great justifier did his work. Whew. But over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the reality that even though this justification has, has been fully purchased for us, that it's a forever settled issue, like, like even though that's, that's already happened, we still live in a world that's broken by sin, right? Like it's just everywhere. Like, like yes, God will one day bring us home. We can bank on that. But for now, like, like aren't we still surrounded by tragedy? Like if this isn't your week, next week will be your week, right? It's just all around us. We're surrounded by a creation that has been temporarily subjected to futility, Romans 8 tells us. We're surrounded by the suffering of others. We experience suffering ourselves, both, listen, by, by, by the sinfulness of others inflicted upon us and even just by the consequences of our own sinfulness sometimes, right? It's everywhere. 
We can't escape suffering in this world. And so over the last couple of weeks, we, we've begun to look at what God does with that suffering. We're surrounded by it. So what does God do with it? And so for the Christian and the Christian worldview, suffering is, is not ignored and it's not dismissed. No, no, for the Christian, we've been given a few tools on how to transcend it. How to transcend it. For starters, we get to see our suffering actually as an assurance that God is working. Why is that the case? Well, because Jesus suffered too, right? We share a family identity. But secondly, we've also been promised that our suffering is never, ever in vain. God is active and he's using our suffering to shape us into the image of his son, right? And so we said last week that, that, that God wants us to look like Jesus even more than he wants us to escape our suffering. And so he ordains and uses suffering now towards that end. And that, that might sound like a little cold if you're in the very middle of your suffering right now. It, it really does, but... Look up for a second and get a glimpse of what the finish line is and that may change your circumstances a little bit. We transcend it. And we long desperately for the day, with a capital D, the day, when our suffering will be over and God will make all things new. But we can also wait patiently for that day because we know that our God is good and that he is faithful. And so that leads us to our text for this morning. And also leads us to a significant question. Like, what about today? Like, what do we, what do, we do in the meantime? I mean, sure, we, we hope for that, that future day, and I can keep my eyes up and continue looking forward to that glorious day to come, and I can trust that God is using my suffering and that it's not in vain, but like, like what, what step do I take this morning? How do I respond to suffering now, this very hour? Well, Paul's got something to say about that too. Look at verse 31 with me. Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? All right, so this, throughout this letter, like I, I hope you've gotten the picture by now. Maybe you're new. Throughout this letter, Paul has made it explicitly clear that our access to God is not something that belongs inherently to us. It's not just something that we kind of just own. It's, it's not something that comes to us by birthright. It's not something that we have earned or even can earn that left to our own devices is not even really something that we actually want, right? Short of the grace of God giving us a new heart, Access or, or nearness, we could say. Nearness to God is, is something that actually seems repulsive and counterintuitive to us. We don't want that. Like, in fact, our, our default bent is to think, don't let that guy back in here. He's the bad guy trying to take his throne back. And so in chapter one, in chapter one, we're told that we've rejected him. In chapter three, we're told that we have fallen short of his glory. And in chapter five, we're called an enemy and the ungodly. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that belongs intrinsically to you that God either needs or wants. Nothing. He is, he's God. He's never lacked anything ever. For all of eternity. Like, like, just play out that game for a second. Like, just say, hypothetically speaking, God all of a sudden found himself in need somehow. 
That's never been the case and never will be the case. He's God, right? But let's say for a second, just to play it out, that all of a sudden he found himself in need. He's still God. He will create it by the mere will of his spoken voice. He doesn't need you. He's not going to bum a $5 bill off of you to go get a cheeseburger. He's got it. He's got it. And this means, this means that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that would force God or somehow woo God in needing to buddy up next to you. But, something has changed, right? Because of the righteousness of Jesus accredited to you and because God took the initiative to, uh, the the grace-fueled initiative to adopt us as sons and daughters, adopt us as his own, God is now for you. For you. The Latin term for this is deus pro nobis. Deus pro nobis. God for us. And that little word pro is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. We, t- we use the word pro all, all the time in our culture. Uh, we're pro this, we're pro that. Uh, we typically, though, mean it as something that we're in favor of, something that we would like to see happen. So like, for instance, I am pro the Cowboys beating the Patriots tonight. <laughs> I didn't say it was gonna happen. I said I'm in favor of it. I'm, I'm in favor of it, right? It's something I want to see happen. I'm pro that. But listen, that's not what the word pro actually means in Latin. We may use it that way in our culture, but that's not what it actually means. Like, Like, we have this really long bad habit in our culture of taking words that are supposed to be really weighty important things and reducing them into nothingness. We do it all the time with all kinds of words. This is one of those words. Uh, more often than not, you see the word pro as a prefix, right? Uh, it's used to talk about something that goes before something else. We're pro this, pro that, when it's a prefix. But when it's standing on its own, all by itself, as a little bitty vocabulary word, pro means on behalf of. On behalf of. In other words, we and God, we're on the same team now. We're on the same team now. We were ungodly. We were the enemy. We were this. We were that. But now we belong to him. He fights for us rather than against us. Oh, well, Steve, that, that, I mean, that's great. But like, I thought we were talking about suffering this morning. Like, what does that have to do with, with, with the suffering thing? Because those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he is also glorified. God's God is obviously for us. And if he is for us, then who or what could ever, ever be against us? Is there anyone or anything that could ever be a match for him? Is there anyone or anything that could ever be stronger or faster or smarter than him? Is there anyone or anything that could ever like stand in authority over him and somehow call him to heal? And if the answer to those questions truly is no, well then it's actually pretty easy to take the next step today, even in the middle of terrible suffering. Because it means that there is not one single moment that is outside of his control. Not one moment. 
There's not, there's not one moment that's too big for him or, or somehow has him confused about the circumstances. There's never one piece of new information that has somehow blindsided him and he didn't see coming. He's got to you know, like, like counsel on it and come back to us after a little bit. There's not one moment because God is for us who could ever, ever be against us. Oh, yeah, okay. Sure, I get that. Yeah, he's God. He's in control. But is he trustworthy? Like, like sure, he's God and all. I, I get that he's capable, but, but like, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm ready to put myself in his hands yet. Like, how do I know that he's not going to just change the script on me somewhere down the road and I'll be left to figure it out on my own? Well, Paul's got that covered too. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The most massive and amazing gift that is ever that ever could be given. Listen, guys, already has been given. Um, we're getting close to Christmas now, and so all over TV, um, you can see what I think are the dumbest commercials on the planet. Um, specifically, has anyone ever walked out the door on Christmas morning and found a Lexus in their parking lot with a bow on top? <laughs> like, it's okay if you drive a Lexus. That's allowed. That, that, that's not a problem. But um, if my wife commits to $40,000 worth of debt and then hands me the keys without us talking about it, I don't think of that as a Christmas present. <laughs> right? Um, it, like, it's okay to have a Lexus, but we're not doing that. We're just not going to do that. Hey, baby, I got you a brand new car. Here's the keys. And, and a long list of banknotes. Hey. But as amazing as the consumeristic culture that we live in, like as, as much as they want to pronounce that as the, the, the top-tier gift that you can somehow love your spouse into getting, giving them the most massive gift that could ever be given has already been given. It's already been given. God the Father gave God the Son for our salvation. And so, so all of this other stuff that, that could ever be asked of God, man, is small potatoes to him. It's nothing to him. Paul says, if he's already given us Jesus, then what could ever, ever be too costly for him? Like, think about it. Like, like how will he not also give us all things? Like, what could ever be too pricey? He's already given us the Son. If we, whatever we need, it's, it's ours because he's already given us Jesus. He called down in the engine room a long time and canceled all the limits, right? It's over. How will he not follow through now? Can you trust him? Yeah. Yeah, you can trust him. How will he not give you all things? Oh, okay. Sure, I, I can get behind that. God is good. He's trustworthy, sure. Um, but, like, um, I, I've done some really dumb stuff. And, like, I've still got some sin issues that I'm not proud of. I'd really not bring, rather not bring them up right now. Nothing terrible. Like, you should see my neighbor Jim. He's a jerk. But, like, like, like I've done some terrible stuff. And theoretically speaking, like, yes, God is good. But what if somebody else wanted to bring them up? What if somebody else wanted to say, hey, but what about this? And what about that? Like, just theoretically speaking, I'd be in a lot of trouble because, yeah, there's some stuff back there. 
Paul's got us covered here too. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding or praying for us. Who is there to charge? It's a rhetorical question because the answer is no one. No one is able to bring a charge. Oh, but what about that Satan guy? Like, isn't isn't he called the great accuser? Like, I heard about him once. He can try. But he will fail. He will fail, at least when it comes to accusing you to God. Like, a lot of people think that Satan's primary task is to tempt, and, and he certainly does that. That's all over the Bible. But the Bible seems to paint the picture that Satan's principal work, his primary job is to accuse. He's the great accuser for a reason. But listen, he doesn't do that to God. Follower of Jesus, he accuses you to you. To you. It's his plan to derail you. It's his plan to to sidetrack you and and steer you away from what God would have you walk in. That's his aim. And so he makes it often practice to bring up the junk that's in your heart that you don't want to talk about. It's his plan to bring that back to your attention. But listen, there is no sin, not past, not present, or even future. No sin that Jesus did not know about and joyfully pay for when he went to the cross. Not a one. Before God, you are clothed in the perfect, complete righteousness of Jesus. And there is no one, not even the great accuser, who can accuse Jesus of anything. Who is there to condemn? The one singular authority that actually holds that right is the one singular authority who chose to justify you. The one who is actually able to condemn is the one who chose instead to cover the cost and declare you to be innocent. Because that's the gospel. The one who died and, and even more was raised and yet even more still now sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And when you hold those absolutely massive truths in your hand, even as you walk through the midst of a world that is broken desperately by sin, that's broken by suffering, as you hold those massive truths in your hand, as you walk through even those realities, guys, it directly affects the way you live. It, it directly affects the way you live today. It, it directly affects the way you take your next step and how. Okay, Stephen. Sure, I... Okay. But like... But I don't know. I mean, like, like did, did Paul really know? Like, did he really, truly know what kind of suffering we would walk through today? Like, I don't, I don't know if Paul really wrapped his head around the kind of suffering that I personally was going to walk through. And listen, I never want to make light of your suffering. But, I mean, it's real and it matters, but... Uh, My heart breaks for you, but I also want to politely and as lovingly as I can look you in the eye and tell you that Paul's got you beat. Paul's got you beat. Whatever you're walking through, your suffering does 
matter, but Paul's got you beat. Why? Because Paul was actually beaten. Often, in fact. Over and over again. Um, in another letter that Paul wrote called 2 Corinthians, he's, he's speaking to a group of people who are going around and openly questioning and subverting his authority as a leader in a church. Not a good day. It's a really painful day. And so he says this in, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23. It says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings. Countless. He used the word countless. And often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak and I'm not weak and who is made to fall and I am not indignant. Paul speaks of the hardships that he has had to face as he sets out throughout his work of proclaiming the gospel. Constant threat to his life. Cold, hunger, physical pain he mentions. Probably worst of all I think betrayed and attacked by his fellow Jews, his own people, blood relatives, but also the Gentiles. Those God called him to love and, and speak the gospel to, reach for the gospel. Oh yeah, and those he, he calls false brothers. People claiming to be Christians. You ever think you're getting it from every side? Paul got it from every side. Can't go to the city, can't go to the wilderness, can't escape it. It's everywhere. And we believe that Paul wrote 2 Corinthians early on in his ministry, meaning it got a lot worse. It got a whole lot worse. He was imprisoned a couple times after that. He was ultimately martyred after that. And we're also pretty sure that he wrote it before he wrote the book of Romans. About a year before, we think. Which means that when Paul wrote our text that we're looking at this morning, Paul intimately understood suffering. He's not sloughing it off as someone who doesn't understand. He intimately understood suffering. Look at verse 35, back in Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Not only did Paul intimately understand suffering, but Paul intimately, also intimately understood the love of Jesus. So he gives another rhetorical question, right? He's not talking about a hypothetical situation, though. This is real to Paul. This is stuff that he's actually lived through. He says, who shall separate us? And he starts talking about tribulation and distress, right? Those are fun days. How many, how many people want to go chase after tribulation today? But then he starts talking about persecution. In other words, hard times actually morph into harmed times. It's not just a rough day. No, he's being attacked. And the question he poses is, can those, can those things separate me from the love of Christ? And the answer is no, because Jesus is bigger still, right? 
Jesus is bigger still. There's not one moment, yes, even in the midst of persecution that is somehow outside of God's control. Not one moment. And then Paul turns up the dial a little bit. He, he, he brings up famine and nakedness. You ever have your safety and security ripped from you? Left vulnerable? Exposed? Prime for attack? But the question is the same, right? Can even these things separate us from the love of Christ? And what is his answer? No, because Jesus is bigger still. There's not one moment, yes, even in the midst of great vulnerability that God is confused about what happened. No one has ever thrown him a curveball he didn't see coming. He's not struggling to figure it out and get back to you later. But then Paul turns up the dial again. He says, danger and sword. Danger is is when your life is threatened. The sword is when they actually succeed in taking it. And some of you are thinking, surely, surely Paul's rhetorical question doesn't extend that far, right? Like, no, that, that, that can't be. Surely God loves us way too much to ever allow such a terrible thing to happen like that. To which Paul responds in verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, as it is written, which means he's quoting something, right? He's quoting Psalm 44, which is written several hundred years before Paul is born. In other words, in other words, suffering is not some new reality for God's people. It's actually always been the reality for God's people. But still, even still, the question that Paul poses is still hanging there, right? It's still waiting to be answered. Can danger or even sword separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is no, because Jesus is bigger still. There's not one moment, yes, even in the midst of dying itself, that God is not in control. Not one. There's not one moment, yes, even in the midst of being under the threat of the sword, that God does not show himself to be better than even that. Trustworthy in that moment. Ah, but wait a second, Woodard. You really going to stand there and tell me that God would allow suffering like that? I mean, I get that he'll let me experience pain, even suffering for the sake of my good. Like, like yeah, I get that he'll use that to, to shape me, but you really gonna tell me, stand there and tell me that God would allow something as heinous as even killing me for his glory? Like, you're, gonna, you're really gonna lay that out there and act like I'm supposed to believe that? Actually, I'm gonna let the Apostle Paul do it. Look at verse 37. He answers his own rhetorical question. Can these things separate us from the love of Christ? He answers, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to, or to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. More than conquerors, he says. More than conquerors. In the world we live in, we, the definition of conqueror we tend to walk with is someone who defeats their enemy, right? And so we have this mental picture of standing over our enemy with our foot on their chest, with our feathered locks blowing in the wind. Maybe your feathered locks. It'll take me a while. But that's the picture we have of a conqueror, right? A, a he-man type. But, but in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, Paul seems to paint the picture that we conquer, God's people will conquer their enemies by outlasting them. By outlasting them. Not, not because we've got that kind of strength inherent within us, but because he who holds on to us does. Deus pro nobis. God is for us who could ever ever be against us. Oh, but Stephen, Paul, Paul talked about tribulation and persecution. He said sword. Yeah. Yeah, he did, but like, what about after that? What, what about after that? I mean, I think we can all agree that the worst thing that our enemy could do to us is to kill us, right? Like, it, nobody's, nobody's going... I could dream up some other stuff. <laughs> the, the worst thing our enemy could do to us is kill us, but for the follower of Jesus, what, what comes next? What comes next? Eternal life with Jesus, right? With Jesus. And so those whom he justified, he has also glorified. Glorified. And so, listen, it, it doesn't matter what force we're talking about, life or the threat of death. We could talk about natural forces or spiritual forces. We could go and throw every earthly king that's ever existed into the conversation. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about present things or things in the future a long way off coming down the pipe. The world can throw everything it's got in its arsenal at you. No matter what it dreams up, literally, literally the worst it could ever do for the follower of Jesus is just speed up your opportunity to go be with Jesus. And if that's the worst it's got, maybe it's not so bad. No matter what you're dealing with today, it may be heinous. It may be tragedy by everyone's standards. No one doubts that. But Jesus is bigger still. Jesus is bigger still, and there is coming a day when Jesus will heroically plant his foot on the chest of your enemy. There's coming a day where Jesus will win. And nothing, no matter what you're dealing with today, can separate you from the love of Jesus who is holding you. Nothing. Nothing. And so what do we, what do we do with all this? We lean into Deus Pro Nobis. 
Like how do we respond to God's word this morning? We lean into Deus pro nobis. For the follower of Jesus, we lean into God. You lean into the one who holds you today and yes, will hold you into eternity. It's his job, he's capable and he's trustworthy and he's already spent whatever needs to be spent. He's got it. He's got it. And listen, if, if those realities really are true, then you can take an incredibly confident step this morning, can't you? Whatever that step needs to be, yes, your suffering is real, but it is never without hope. Never. And because of Jesus, neither is it ever something that could ever completely beat you. Yeah, even up to the taking of your life, because guess what? Jesus is on the other side of that one too. Paul seemed to long for it. Maybe it's okay for us as well. I think the Christian needs to respond to God's word this morning by, by listen, by ceasing to their desperate attempt to fix all their junk and instead trust Jesus to do it. And some of you this morning, man, you need nothing more than a restful moment where you let go. Others of us, our job is to surround those in the middle of our, their suffering and point them to the Jesus who's better still. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. And If you need someone to talk and pray with, uh, we'll have some leaders down front here to, to, to serve you in that way. If, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can respond to God's word too and you do that by meeting Jesus you repent of your sin, and you call on him as Lord. Without Jesus, not only do you still stand before God based on your own insufficient righteousness, something that you probably don't want to see happen, but also, but also you have nothing that to confidently look forward to when the brokenness of this world finally catches up with you like everybody else. It's coming. It's all around us. We can't escape it, but the Christian has something that you don't. It is with Jesus that these things look small. It is with Jesus that these things can be endured. And yes, it is with Jesus that these things could ever, ever be considered a light momentary affliction like Paul talks about. Without the otherworldly promise and presence of Jesus, all you have is the brokenness of this world. But, but listen, you can respond to God's word today by meeting Jesus. And so I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing and we'll have a time to respond to God's word. And listen, if, if you want to meet Jesus today, I'd love to walk you through that process. And so I'll be down front here. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the weighty book of Romans. So much more here than we could ever fully unfold. But God, the, the drumbeat that keeps being banged, the, the thing that Paul seems to want us to know is that you are good and you are faithful and you will be victorious. So your people, even though we live in a world that is broken by sin, even though our own sin sometimes even contributes to the problem, even though we're surrounded by suffering, you are never not good. And you are never not faithful. And you are never in a position where the victory is unsure. So God, help us lean in this morning. Lean into your goodness. Lean into your care for us.
Father, for those who are waiting through the struggle, give us rest. For those who are around those waiting, would you help us serve and point to you? And Father, if there's anybody here this morning who doesn't know you yet, I, would you make yourself known to them? Would you open eyes to see? Would you open ears to hear? And would you expand your kingdom by it? You are good. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.